Chapter 3 of Monday Tales. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Monday Tales by Alphonse Daudet. Chapter 3 The Vision of the Judge of Colmar. Before he had taken the oath of allegiance to Emperor William, there was nowhere a happier man than little Judge Dollinger of the court of Colmar, when he arrived in the courtroom, full-lipped, big-bellied, his toque pushed jauntily sideways, his triple chin resting placidly upon his muslin neckband, he seemed to say, as he seated himself, Ah, a nice little nap I shall have. And it was a pleasure to see him stretch his plump little legs, burying himself in his great armchair, while he reposed upon that fair, soft leather cushion to which he owed the fact that his complexion was as fresh as ever, and his temper as unruffled, although he had occupied a judge's seat for more than thirty years. Unfortunate Dollinger! From the moment he touched that leather circumference he was lost. He found it so comfortable, grew so attached to that cushion of moleskin, that, sooner than budge from it, he became a Prussian. Emperor William said to him, Keep your seat, Monsieur Dollinger, and Dollinger kept it. And here we behold him, at the court of Colmar, dispensing justice as ably as ever, but in the name of his Berlinese majesty. About him nothing has changed. The same tribunal, faded and dull, the same courtroom with its shiny benches and hum of lawyers' voices, the same dim, subdued light falling through the high windows with their serge curtains, the same majestic figure of the Christ covered with dust, his head bowed, his arms outstretched. But the court of Colmar has lost no whit of its former dignity in passing over to Prussia. There is still an emperor's bust back of the judge's bench. Yet, in spite of all these things, Dollinger does not feel at home. Vainly he rolls from side to side in his armchair, buries himself in it angrily. He can no longer enjoy those nice little naps of other days, and when he chances, as of old, to fall asleep at a hearing, he has frightful dreams. Dollinger dreams that he is seated upon a high mountain. It reminds him somewhat of Hanuk or the balloon of Alsace. What is he doing there alone in his judge's robe, at that vast height where nothing can be seen but stunted trees and swarms of flies? Dollinger does not know why he is there. Cold drops of sweat rise upon him. He trembles in suspense and suffers all the agony of a nightmare. Across the Rhine, behind the firs of the Black Forest, the sun is rising, large and red, and as it rises, below in the valleys of Munster and Thon, is heard from one end of Alsace to the other an indistinct rumble, the sound of footsteps and of wagons in motion. It grows louder and nearer. Dollinger's heart sinks within him. Soon, upon the long winding road ascending the sides of the mountain, the judge of Colmar sees approaching him a mournful, interminable train. All Alsace has chosen this pass of the Vosges as the starting point of its solemn emigration. Leading the procession, 
come long wagons drawn by four oxen, those long open wagons which at harvest time are seen overflowing with sheaves. Now, however, they are loaded with furniture, tools, and luggage of all sorts. Big beds, tall presses, calico hangings, chests and spinning wheels, children's chairs, ancestral armchairs, piles of ancient relics dragged from their corners and scattering to every wind along the highway the sacred dust of the hearth. Entire households depart in these wagons, groaning as they advance. The oxen are scarcely able to drag their burden, for it seems as if the very earth clung to the wheels, as if these handfuls of dust clinging to plough and harrow, to rake and pickaxe, increased the burden they bore, as though this departure were indeed an uprooting of the soil. Then followed a silent train of people, of all conditions and ages, the aged grandfather with his three-cornered hat, tremulous, leaning upon his staff, boys with flaxen curls, a single suspender supporting their trousers of fustian, the paralytic grandmother stout lads are bearing upon their shoulders, mothers pressing their nursing babes closer to the breast, all are there, the brave-hearted and the infirm, soldiers-to-be, and those who have faced the horrors of many a battlefield, cuirassiers who have lost their limbs, dragging themselves upon crutches, artillerymen, emaciated, broken down, the damps of the casemates of Spandau still clinging to their uniforms. And all this host moves on its way with heads erect. At the side of that very road over which they are passing, the judge of Colmar is seated, and as they pass him by, he reads upon each averted face an awful look of anger and loathing. Oh, unhappy Dollinger! He longs to hide, to flee, but it is impossible, for his armchair cannot be moved from that mountain, and his leather cushion is fastened to the armchair, and he is as firmly attached to that leather cushion. And now he understands that a sort of pillory stands there, and he is in it, and his pillory has been erected so high, in order that all the world may witness his shame. The emigrants move on, village after village, those of the Swiss frontier leading enormous herds of cattle, those of the Saar carrying their heavy iron tools in ore wagons. Then the larger towns arrive, spinners, tanners, weavers and warpers, burghers and priests, rabbis, magistrates, black robes and red robes. The tribunal of Colmar appears, its venerable president at the head, and Dollinger, overwhelmed with shame, seeks to hide his face, but his hands are paralyzed, tries to close his eyes, but his eyelids are stiff and immovable. There he is compelled to remain, the most observed of observers. He may not be spared a single one of those contemptuous glances which his colleagues cast at him as they pass. A judge in the pillory, terrible indeed! And, worst of all, all his dear ones are in that concourse, and not one of them appears to recognize him. His wife, his children, pass before him, their eyes fixed on the ground. 
it would seem that they too are ashamed of him. Even little Michel, whom he loves so dearly, passes him by never to return, and casts not a single glance in his direction. But the aged president pauses a moment and whispers to him, Come with us, Dollinger. Do not remain there, my friend. But Dollinger is unable to rise. He tries to move his limbs. He calls. All day long, the procession moves on, and as the daylight fades, it has disappeared in the distance, and silence descends upon those fair valleys dotted with factories and belfry towers. All Alsace has departed. Only the judge of Colmar remains. And there he sits, at the top of the mountain, riveted in his pillory, immovable. Suddenly, the scene changes. Yew trees are seen, black crosses, rows of tombs, and an assemblage of mourners. It is the cemetery of Colmar. Someone of note has come to his last resting place. All the bells of the city are tolling. Councillor Dollinger is dead. That which honor could not effect, death has accomplished. It has unscrewed the immovable magistrate from his leather cushion, and he lies at full length, this man whose sole ambition was to remain seated forever. What sensation more horrible than to dream that one is dead and his own chief mourner? His heart overcome with grief, Dollinger assists at his own burial service. And that which afflicts him more than his death is the fact that in this immense crowd which presses about him is neither friend nor relative. No one from Colmar, only the Prussians. Prussian soldiers escort the beer. Prussian magistrates are the chief mourners, and the words that are spoken over his grave are Prussian. And the cold, cold earth thrown over him is, alas, Prussian earth. Suddenly, the crowd stands respectfully aside. A magnificent white cuirassier approaches, concealing under his cloak something which looks not unlike a crown of immortelles. All about him voices are heard, saying, Look, there is Bismarck, there is Bismarck. And the judge of Colmar thinks sadly, A great honor, Count, you bestow upon me, but if I only had my little Michel... He does not end his sentence. A mighty burst of laughter interrupts him. Wild, mad, uncontrollable laughter, scandalizing to hear. What are they laughing about, wonders the terrified judge. He raises himself and looks. It is his cushion, his own leather cushion, that Count Bismarck has placed religiously upon his grave, and around its moleskin circumference, runs this inscription. To Judge Dollinger, the glory of the bench, souvenirs and regrets. From one end of the cemetery to the other ring peals of laughter, convulsive laughter, and the boisterous mirth of the Prussians echoes even to the floor of the vault where the dead man lies, weeping with shame, overwhelmed, covered with endless ridicule, End of chapter 3. Recording by Linda Johnson.